everyone had to go in. And once once you open those floodgates, all the world's best technology moved to R&D facilities and manufacturing facilities in country and was very quickly stolen and appropriated to be used by Chinese national champions. No one in the real business, it's not a hyperscaler, it's not Google, no one goes from zero to 130 billion. Welcome to the IA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the head of public policy here at the IA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, will China win the wireless wars? 5G is a revolutionary wireless technology that's not only meant to drive faster mobile internet speeds, but also the internet of things, uh, driverless cars, as well as modern industrial machinery. Yet many analysts have suggested that Western companies are falling behind Chinese telco equipment giant Huawei, which has now been banned from many Western networks. To discuss the future of innovation in the telco space and, and the competition with China, I'm very excited to be joined by John Pelson. John spent 25 years working as executive at some of the world's largest telecom equipment makers and service providers, including British Telecom in the UK. He's also author of an excellent new book, Wireless Wars, China's Dangerous Domination of 5G and How We're Fighting Back. John, welcome to the IA podcast. Uh, nice to be here, Matthew. So you say pretty early on in your book, we taught them how to cook Western style and now they're eating our lunch. I want to talk a little bit about your experiences um, selling telco equipment in China, what, what you kind of learned from that. I, I think you talk about how you were there in the early days when it seemed like China wasn't really much of a technological or um, military threat, but how these things rapidly shifted. You have to realize that you don't have to go back very far in China's history to see that this was uh, to, to where the country was just deeply impoverished with no industrial or manufacturing capability. 1980, their, their GDP per capita was lower than Sudan, it was about $190 per person per year versus 11000 I think it was for the US. Uh, and when companies like Philips went there to try to make a coffee pot, they, they came away saying, there's no capability in this country to make a, a glass carafe that, that meets this, the spec that we have for our products. 20 years later, they had surpassed Bell Laboratories, Marconi, uh, Alcatel, all the world's most brilliant engineering companies in the most sophisticated technology. And it's both a testimony to the capability of the people in China and to the aggressiveness with which the government led the intellectual property theft and, uh, and and the government made a decision to back the development of what they considered to be critically important companies and important sectors. The, the Western companies like Lucent, where I was at the time, Lucent Bell Laboratories, moved manufacturing to China in the 90s. And in a way, it was a boneheaded move because they were required to share intellectual property. They knew there was what they didn't share would be stolen. But the fact is, any company that didn't move there would have been knocked out of the market by any company that did. So if, if Lucent said, we're going to keep our manufacturing in Shreveport, Louisiana, but Nokia and Alcatel said, all right, well, we'll move into China, then, then Nokia could have been selling into the United States market at pennies on the dollar and Lucent would have been put out of business even faster. So as long as you had that kind of tragedy, the commons, where everyone was tempted to go in there and they kind of couldn't not 
go into China, everyone had to go in. And once once you open those floodgates, all the world's best technology moved to R&D facilities and manufacturing facilities in country and was very quickly stolen and appropriated to be used by Chinese national champions. Yeah, I think there's there's almost an in, intriguing kind of repeating of history there. Uh, if, you, if you look back at some of the history, uh, I've been looking at recently in relation to uh, microchips and, and microprocessors, where initially Japan comes in and says, oh, we're going to buy this. We're just going to manufacture uh, what, what the US um, innovators are doing. And then a decade later, they've managed to innovate even beyond that. And you've, you've, I think it's from, from reading your book, it's kind of a similar story with respect to China, where what Huawei started as a, a pretty plucky startup, um, basically buying Western equipment and, and reselling it into China, but very quickly it managed to co- not only begin by copying that equipment, but even um, innovating and improving upon it, where Huawei... Um, through kind of a, a mir- quite miraculous, I suppose, impressive uh, and maybe in some ways um, concerning business practices managed to become effectively world-leading in 5G. Yeah, the, the companies in China, the state-owned companies, there was one called Great Dragon. That was going to be their national telecom equipment maker, totally owned by the CCP. And I had an account from the CEO of Broadsoft, an American technology firm, and what he told me was he went there on a uh, on a meeting in, in China and at the hotel, they were hosting all the regional service providers, companies that bought Great Dragon's equipment. And he said the whole week they would, they would head out, people would sleep in, they'd have this terrific lunch to start the day, then they'd head out into town, they'd be visiting the bars, the nightclubs. Uh, he detailed some of the other places that these guys were clearly visiting based on who they were bringing home with them back to the hotel. And at the end of the week, the buses pulled up and these gentlemen, as they would board the bus, each one would be handed his binder of that previous week's training materials. So they could go back and show their boss, yeah, I just got trained. I've been brought up to speed. Of course, they didn't know anything. And the only thing that mattered was that the phone number for Great Dragon was on the binder uh, on the spine of the, of the, the notebook because they were now obligated to call back and say, I don't know how to fix any of this. Can you guys send someone? That company had no innovation, they had no technology focus, they had no customer delivery focus, and they went out of business. But Huawei, which was private to the extent that you had a founder who wanted to get rich and wanted to build a company in his own vision, they thrived and they did they did great. But that said, no one in the real business, it's not a hyperscaler, it's not Google, no one goes from zero to 130 billion in a few years when your business requires you to, you're, you're, as we call them, metal benders, you're building boxes, you're constructing equipment, you have to put up factories, you have multi-year leads, you know, sales cycles. Somehow they went uh, to, to until they were bigger than Nokia and Ericsson combined three times over in literally, you know, uh, 10 years. So, so there was a, a government angle there pouring in tens of billions of dollars to help them grow in a way that companies could not otherwise grow. Yeah, so so I think that there's quite an interesting and tricking history here with Huawei, where they, they do start as this kind of plucky private startup, but then become a national champion. And when something in China is a national champion, uh, you you cite some research in, in your book suggesting that it's effectively ultimately owned by the CCP and controlled by uh, the CCP. On top of that, hugely subsidized by the CCP. And the implication of that um, 
on the global market was quite substantial. You you saw in um, your own experience just how it undermines the the ability of Western companies to compete because Huawei would, would go in and undersell or underprice, perhaps even what some economists would call dumping. Now, I'm normally skeptical of the idea of dumping. Like normally, I think if a foreign producer is going to um, be subsidised to the point where they're selling a product really cheaply to me fantastic you know i get a product a bit cheaper than i might otherwise get it but it seems like something more nefarious is going on here when it comes to huawei yeah that, that was there were two revelations early in the book i i initially was going to be writing a business book uh about the the the, the commercial battle between these companies and a couple of things emerged that changed the thesis it wasn't that china was backing huawei so they would have a successful company in the industry China was backing Huawei, I realized, so that China would have a tool to assert their own political power in the world. Huawei was a means to an end. And the two revelations, one came from a, a FBI counterintel officer that I was, through dumb luck, able to meet. And the other one came through my economics professor, uh, who uh, I, I'll start with what he shared with me. We talked about dumping uh, and talked about subsidizing. Subsidizing. The U.S. subsidizes Cisco, our big internet equipment champion. Uh, Wall Street Journal estimated $45 million over about a 15-year period. That's million with an M. During that same period, Huawei was subsidized with $75 billion from the government of China, according to the journal's study. Wow. So you start looking at that and say, now, wait a minute. Now, how do you get that money back? Well, you know, the time value of money is such that if you put in $75 billion over a decade and a half funding losses. Mathematically, there's no profits they could reasonably ever make that will pay that back. And they know it. So why in the world did they put in $75 billion knowing that even if Huawei starts making five, 10 billion a year forever, you can't you can't justify that expense. And 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 likewise, the the dumping, you know, dumping is a business decision. And hey, if China wants to basically tax its own citizens and give that money to the, to American citizens in the form of cheaper products. Hey, let them do it. That's their problem. Buy the cheaper products, redirect your companies to make something that Huawei's not making. It's a classic make or buy decision. And uh, as, as my, uh, as Professor Munger said, you know, when I, when I go into Kroger's, there's a very balanced, very uneven balance of trade with the supermarket down the street from me. I buy lots of stuff and they take my money. But last time I tried to sell them any of my stuff, they had me thrown out. <laughs> he said, I'm happy with that trade. They make butter. I can buy shoes in the store better than I can churn my own butter and make my own shoes. I should be writing books and teaching classes. Everyone's happy. So I don't buy the balance of trade arguments that you hear with China. Uh, the problem is this is not a trading partner. Uh, and this is where the, the FBI officer came in. He said, do you know where Huawei is selling its cell towers, its cell equipment in the U.S.? I said, like nowhere, in the middle of, of nothing, you know, North Dakota, Montana. And he said, it's do you know Huawei has been unsuccessful in, in terms of the big telco providers in the U.S. It has been more successful in the, in the U.K. with British, British Telecom um, and, and in Africa and Asia, but not in the U.S. major telco. Exactly. British Telecom was the first Western telco to deploy their stuff into, into the network. In the U.S., the big carriers wouldn't buy it. But where they did deploy was around America's nuclear cell, uh, missile bases, around our special operations commands, our, our drone bases. And it was no coincidence. And it became clear 
there was something else going on. Now in the UK, uh, I was at BT when the decision was made to deploy Huawei. And I understand British Telecom was in rough shape, uh, billions in pension obligations that weren't going to be covered. And you had a CEO who was trying to fix things. And it wasn't for him to make a, a decision that although this company is allowed by our national security apparatus, I won't buy them. And his obligation is to the shareholders mm. and working within the law by the best, cheapest equipment. Uh, if they knew that Huawei was compromised, I think they would not have bought it. Regardless, it wasn't absolutely clear, although a lot of chatter was de detected on these switches in the British network. And chatter is when you have a switch that ought to be showing a certain level of activity for the calling it's handling. But if it's showing twice as much activity, you say, well, maybe they're sending all that information, not just to the recipient, to some server in Shenzhen. And in fact, that's exactly what they found. And a lot of that gear got ripped out. And more recently, the UK has finally made the decision to tear out all Huawei equipment in the network, which from everything I've learned uh, is, a, is a smart decision for national security. Yeah, so I, I think this is quite uh, in, intriguing kind of, I suppose, business proposition or, or not really business proposition, I, I guess, um, kind of uh, geostrategic play by uh, the, the, the CCP through Huawei, which is we're going to sell um, Huawei gear which is of standard. Some of it's very high standard, in fact, in 5G, but we're going to sell it at much lower prices than um, any of the other uh, competitors, Western competitors in the market. And so it's been really bought up. You know, we, we, we think now it's kind of banned um, quite consistently uh, across Europe, but it's been consistent. It's been brought up very heavily um, across Africa and across, across Asia with all sorts of, I'm guessing, dodgy um, procurement going on. Um, I think it was a classic case that necessarily was Huawei, but the the African Union um HQ where they they determined that the the Chinese built and Chinese telco supplied um material had all that kind of chatter as well and had to strip it all out of the African Union headquarters and, and parliament because in fact it turns out that it, it was sending back unclassified information. So but in the process they managed to very much undermine the innovation and the profit margins and the investment that could be put into the infrastructure in the West. Because if you're a company that has to compete with Huawei, um, even if you do successfully compete, you, your profit margins are going down. You, you can't compete with the Chinese state necessarily as a private company. That's right. When, when Alcatel bought Lucent, I spoke to the CEO of the combined entity and she told me we had all these plans to use the savings from combining the companies. You can eliminate a lot of uh, jobs, eliminate facilities. You should generate billions of additional money now. She said it was going to go into R&D to catch up with the, the now leading Chinese. And she said all that money had to go into price cuts of our existing products just to have parity with the prices that they were charging. And again, when you have a government feeding tens of billions of dollars a year, in some cases, into a company, you can undercut anyone who's got a commercial constraint. And the danger is when you do deploy these Huawei networks, you look at, take, take post-COVID, look how petulant China was towards Australia. Australia asked for an investigation into COVID and China said, all right, no more beef, no more coal imports from Australia. We'll teach you to, to speak up. Well, 5G, and this is really important. 5G is not just faster 4G. The whole essence of 5G is it's going to be used to interconnect factory 
elements and ports and help warehouses find things. It's really about the internet of things because it's very reliable, very fast, very low, what they call latency. So it, it quickly gets information moved around without lags. And uh, factories all use sensors today in their production. And they're wired sensors typically because they're much more reliable. But now 5G is out. It's just as reliable and it's more configurable. You can change the layout of your factory as things, as demands change. That's an important thing, flexibility. So you picture uh, AstraZeneca vaccine factory uh, dealing with the next pandemic. And all of a sudden, the sensors are giving false readings. All of a sudden, the temperature levels are going through the roof or dropping or coming up zero altogether. And your Huawei 5G network is not allowing your vaccine factory to operate. Well, the idea that you would turn that power over to the CCP on such critical things that your ports would stop operating, the ships aren't being recognized, unloading can't happen. You can't, for national security, allow a country that feels it's at least a rival, and I think they see us as an enemy, frankly, you can't allow them that power. And that's really what 5G is about. It's not about spying. And of course, there's going to be spying, but it really is about controlling the most basic activities of civil life. Yeah, and I, I think in inverse, China would never allow Western equipment to have such a central role in their telco networks. Um, one thing that kind of struck me, so the, the, there was a debate in the UK a few years old now around the time um, of uh, the government making a decision whether or not to allow Huawei in the 5G network. And the initial decision in the UK, at least, not Australia, not the US, was that it could be um, risk could be mitigated against effectively that you could uh, set up um, systems to ensure the quality. And, and you discussed this, there is some board in the UK whose job it is to look at um, and make sure that there are no vulnerabilities in the Huawei um, gear. I think that you described very well how ultimately that, that process can never be guaranteed because if the manufacturer can always send an update, a software update and uh, at any time and, and undermine the whole system. Um, and the other part of that as well with 5G is there's no distinction between core and periphery of the network. Right. There, there are people who said, well, if you just allow Huawei in the edge of the network, not in the heart of the network where all this, you know, the computers and the switches and routers are, that's fine. But 5G, the edge of the network is sophisticated processing and, and has to be trusted by the core. So anything happening out at the edge is, is a breach anyway. I learned something shocking. After the book was published uh, about the British uh, Huawei Test Center, I was at an event and I met an a, a intelligence officer. And uh, it's one of these things where you don't get last names, but uh, given the, the crowd, I know this guy was legit. And as we spoke, it became very clear that he knew exactly what he was talking about. He knew the names of the individuals at the Huawei Test Center. Uh, and so I was able to validate what the Huawei test center is in the UK. Sure. So it's a, it's a facility that was built to make sure that any Huawei equipment that went into the British network was safe, trustworthy, reliable. Uh, the center was run by Huawei. It was funded by <laughs> Huawei. And then it was co-managed with uh, other authorities. Now, that should raise some flags. But what he told me was that he was reviewing the contract agreement for the establishment of that center. And here's what, what he learned. Uh, if they're testing a piece of equipment and they find that it's compromised, it has a backdoor that would say allow Huawei uh, or authorities in China to spy on a conversation in, in London, then that 
uh, well, well, first, if it's if they don't find anything, it goes into the network. Everything's good. But if they do find there's a problem, it doesn't go into the network, but there's a non-disclosure agreement. And the test center can't tell any of its partners that this is compromised equipment. And who in the world signs a contract like that? But that's uh, that's the terms that are in place now for that Huawei test center. Wow. So Huawei is now, it is a, a realization, I think, post-COVID that China's a threat. A lot of focus went on Huawei. Um, the US government uh, made a decision to block the ability to send chips uh, that are core to the Huawei gear. Um, and of course, a, a lot of the um, base stations that they're developing actually use Western chips. China, China doesn't have much capacity to develop their own their own microchip, their own fabs. I'm, I'm wondering what has been the, the impact on Huawei? Where, where are they today in terms of their, their capacity um, to uh, continue dominating in the sector? Is China going to be able to you know, replace all those uh, loss of Western technology? And what was the justification for that from, I think it was the Trump administration, for restricting the export of these chips to Huawei? Yeah, it's one of those extraordinary situations where both the Trump administration and the Biden administration see eye to eye on this. Uh, total continuity of policy on the threat that Chinese technology is presenting. And people, there's a few false arguments that I hear about it. I say, well, America just doesn't want the Chinese competition. The United States has no competitors in that sector anymore. I don't think America would jeopardize our own business in order to help a Finnish company called Nokia sell more stuff into America, uh, to help a Swedish company called Ericsson. There are no American companies even playing in this space. So it's not protectionism or, or helping favor our own companies. The fear is that uh, China is using the, the company as a tool to get access to and to be able to control and influence operations of, of foreign countries. And, and one thing that I found extraordinary is that Huawei's revenues went from about $130 billion to about $90 or $95 billion in just a little over a year. And yet they just reported healthy profits, good profit margins. They're expanding R&D and they added thousands of engineers for their new businesses they're getting into. And I will tell you, as a guy who worked for a big tech firm, it's not possible. When you have an abrupt, completely unpredicted 30% drop in your top line, you, you can make massive cuts and you have to, and you're still going to be running a huge loss for years. And yet somehow with their non-transparent reporting, uh, Huawei's showing uh, their, their profit margins half what it was, but they still have uh, about a 5% margin. So, so so what can they still produce? So so there's only been limits in the export of some chips and they can still make some of the older base stations or they can still make some of their phones. What what's, what's, What is the Huawei business without those kind of core essential uh, microprocessing chips? Yeah, here's the funny thing. They, um, the, the ban was withheld and postponed again and again. And it was only in the past week or so that there's rumor, uh, a Financial Times reporter, uh, Dimitri Savastopoulos, broke a story that they're going to be completely withholding any licenses to export chips to Huawei. Now, what that tells you is what a surprise. They actually hadn't done that yet. So Intel, Qualcomm were still exporting chips to Huawei. So they were able to keep making stuff. Some of the very high-end chips they were not able to get. And basically what you do is you reconfigure your phone with lower-end chips, either that you're still able to buy or that you can make yourself. Because you know, while we can make decent chips, the phone won't 
be as cool, won't work as well. Power won't maybe uh, be managed as well. The battery won't last, but you can still stay stay in business. This complete shutdown, I, I hear another false argument saying what we're going to do is just force China to create its own capability faster. Uh, I never buy that argument. Um, if you say, therefore, we should continue supplying them with state-of-the-art sophisticated chips uh, because otherwise they'll get too powerful. That's nonsense. Uh, you really do hamper them. And one thing that we've learned is China's a great fast follower, great at stealing leading technology and innovating within the, 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 the bounds that they're allowed. But when brilliant innovators in China, and they're, and they're there, when they try to assert themselves like Jack Ma, they get disappeared. Uh, so if you want to find a brilliant, innovative Chinese in, uh, creator, leave China. Look what you have in the United States or in Europe, because that's where they go. If they can get out, that's where they can let their thing uh, happen. And I talk about permissionless innovation in the book. Yeah, this is let, a concept. Let, let's go on to that. I, I think this is, I think this is a really important point here, which is um, we, we have this situation where China is, you know, a, a geostrategic threat as well as a, a technological competitor. Now, I don't really mind them so much as a technological competitor because, you know, if China wants to putting aside nefarious purposes when it comes to Huawei, if, if they want to sell me a high quality product, I'm willing to buy it. But at the same time, a, a lot of the the discussion these days in in Western policy circles in the UK, in particular, but also in the US, is well, we need to respond to China by effectively trying to replicate their model. We need to subsidize certain industries. We need to, we need to, in the UK at the moment, a lot of discussion in recent um, days about a, a chip strategy. You know, the UK needs a chip strategy, not the UK beyond design has any real capacity in, in fabricating chips, but in any case, we need a chip strategy. And, and the US, of course, has thrown tens of billions into that effort. Uh, the Europeans are doing similar. It seems like we're not necessarily um, responding in, in a market-driven way. And uh, you, you and your book, one of the reasons why I think it's, it's, it's so good and interesting is because your response to this is, let's not be like China. Let's focus on commissionless innovation. Yeah, there were, there were people that argued uh, that we should put $10 billion into Ericsson so they can stand up to Huawei. I think Attorney U.S. Attorney General argued that. And um, the, the problem is you can't beat China at China's game. Centrally controlled national initiatives, five-year plans. They they wrote that book. Uh, but one of the things I talk about in Wireless Wars is that the United States and free countries, I don't want to say the West, by the way, because I include Japan, Korea, Taiwan. These countries uh, thrive economically and commercially and innovate because uh, culturally, there's a much wider tolerance for, for failure, for enormous success, you can get very wealthy. There's no great shame in, uh, you know, pe people don't look at Jeff Bezos as uh, the shame of the United States or or, uh, or uh, Elon Musk. There's people that don't like him. And certainly when you're up to two, $300 billion, there's going to be uh, concerns. But they're also in, in ways heroes. You know, people become fanboys for what they're doing because it's it's extraordinary. In China, Jack Ma, the richest man in the country, is has been eliminated. He's not dead. Very lucky for him because he's there's... just disappeared. Yeah, the, the bourgeois culture that Digi McCloskey talks about, you know, the, the championing of, of entrepreneurs and creators and innovators as kind of a key Western um benefit. That, that's right. And and if you if you look at there's a concept I came across at a, a group called the Mercatus Center called permissionless innovation. And the idea is that instead of government nurturing and helping someone with an innovation, you see it all the time, these are companies that 
went against the government, broke cultural norms, they broke laws. You cannot pick up a stranger in a car if you're not a licensed taxi driver with a medallion. And yet Uber was doing just that. Uh, government sued him. They said, you're not licensed. And, and they won. They faced the government in court and won. You had Airbnb and uh, uh, Verbo, uh, vacation rental places saying, you're not zoned to be a hotel. You can't have strangers staying in your house. And they faced the government in court and they won. Not every single time, but often. In China, you face the government in court and you hope you don't get executed because there are many examples I found where that was literally the outcome. They faced the government and two weeks later, summary execution of senior executives who had crossed a line. So when you have this willingness, uh, not encouragement, but tolerance of people kind of shaking up, you get disruptive innovation, totally changes models. If you're going to destroy the American hotel industry with Airbnb, well, and then that's what the technology is allowing you to do. In China, no one's able to destroy a, a, a venerable institution with their breakthrough idea. They know what's going to happen to them. So that kind of innovation, Spotify is one of the European examples that's done so well. And there's lawsuits, there's civil suits, and they prevail. But that cultural environment is not present. And China could never allow it without losing control that they need over the masses. And if anything, Xi is going in the other direction here, it, where China was being successful, and particularly in the 2000s, was allowing a, a kind of innovative, innovative entrepreneurial class to develop and form. And now, now you know, the Jack Maher example being a very good case here, um, that's being clamped down upon. I'm interested then, how can we apply that kind of principle of permissionless innovation to uh, the, the telco space? How, how, does, how does permissionless innovation lead us to, to beating China in the wireless wars? Well, so I think that the telecom network space has to look a lot more like the internet. Uh, for, for people that remember back in the day when you had telephones, they came up with something called call waiting, where if you're on the phone, you wouldn't get a busy signal. I don't know if people today even know what a busy signal is. You would call someone and it would buzz because they were on the phone. So you couldn't, couldn't let them know you were trying to call them. Uh, it took about 10 or 15 years for the phone company to come up with a way to let someone know that someone else was trying to call them. Uh, you know, th these types of caller ID, now 20 years in the making. Now you can see the number of the person calling you. That's how the telecom networks work because we're closed systems. Innovation was not really the game. On the internet, between introducing the internet and having a Zoom video like we're doing now was lightning speed. People invented things because anyone can invent an app and put it onto the internet. You cannot invent an app and put it onto your wireless telephone network. Uh, it is absolutely locked down. Nokia or Ericsson or Huawei is going to deliver it. So the, the answer has to lie in unleashing all the innovative people. And I talk about one possible path. There's something called open RAN, which is just the idea that you crack open all the connections between a cellular antenna and a cellular switch and a cellular router and all the different elements of the cell phone network, the stuff that's up in the cell towers and down at the bottom of the tower and in the, in the switching centers. Right now, it's all closed network. And one possible path is to open up those connections so that if Dell wants to make a radio, they can join the business. Or if some guy in, in uh, uh, at, at the university comes up with a new software for handing off a phone call, he can introduce it into the network. And once you've 
open that up, I think it's going to be very powerful. Now, I don't know if open RAN is going to be the answer because it's it's got a problem. You don't have one neck to choke. When you deploy your network, there could be 30 different companies that are making hardware software. Instead of just going to Nokia and yelling at them, you got to start wrangling them. And, and Capgemini maybe owns fixing that or Accenture. And, and they're not, right now, they're not up to it either. So uh, the, the answer somehow has to lie in unleashing creative free market forces instead of uh, scale large centralized companies, and and that's ultimately the the way you're going to see more innovation in the space. Because I think it, it it's kind of striking the sense in which you have so few providers of telco infrastructure that it is a very specialized area. It doesn't necessarily have to be so. It doesn't necessarily have to be Ericsson providing this piece of infrastructure. If if a bunch of other companies can provide the same. Uh, service and compete with each other in a kind of uh, an open marketplace, you could end up with a much better outcome. And that would also uh, very much um, reduce the cost, I presume, and and make it far more cost competitive, even with a subsidized Chinese um, competitor. That's right. Um, And I'm I'm kind of interested to hear as well is is the kind of historical metaphor, just just for something to finish up with, where where your book opens with, which is with AT&T basically inventing um, wireless telephone technologies, but then uh, at Bell Labs and not realizing the goal that they have and just the the kind of stagnation that comes with being um, a a big monopolistic player in the space that's got a little bit too much revenue, more than it necessarily needs and therefore isn't at the cutting edge. Um, what is is it worth thinking about it in that way that you know we we can kind of have a history might end up repeating itself where the innovators come through and the the old kind of stagnant bigger providers in the space ends up falling apart. Yeah, it's, it's part of the it's the dilemma. You release spectrum, and that should allow innovators to provide wireless services. Now, who should that spectrum go to? Well, typically it goes to the companies that are already operating services in the spectrum because they have most of the talent and the capital and they know how to run a network, but they're not looking to disrupt anything, whether it's British Telecom or uh, uh, or AT&T or anyone. Those companies are very competent and they have a great argument saying we should be getting the spectrum and we'll bid the most for it. It should go to the high bidder. Well, it's always going to go to them. But when you get companies like Rakuten, in Japan or DISH in the US that are trying to build radically different types of networks using kind of this open model that I'm talking about where components come from any company. You can do it today. It's not easy, but it's being done. Uh, the argument is that they should be allowed to get spectrum, but then you start picking winners. Who's the government going to gift that spectrum to? And that is a bad, that is a dangerous strategy. Anytime the government is giving either uh, something of value like spectrum or direct cash, you're you're uh, steering a market in a non-market way. You're, you're picking uh, winners, but more likely picking picking losers. Exactly, and and one example of that, Matthew, is uh, when the Chips Act, uh, which is perhaps fifty billion dollars to telecom uh, to to chips companies, if if you grant money, if you say we're going to give Intel. $5 billion to do this chip development work, for example. Well, Intel's going to take that money and they'll do that work because it's free funding. But they won't go out and hire 8,000 more engineers. You can't. It's just not possible. So they're going to take their teams and redirect them from what the company thought was a really good use of money to something that they didn't really have any input on, but 
sure, we're, we're game, it's free, maybe we'll get something out of it. It's a dangerous uh, model to work under when you crowd out other activities because you're giving money for free. You're basically steering the market in a non-market way. And that looks an awful lot like China, who for all of its efforts still can't make a, an advanced microchip. They still can't do it. And if you ask me, I don't think they're going to be able to, with their cultural constraints um, that the government's putting, I don't think they're going to be able to. Struggling to get to that kind of cutting edge of innovation. Well, John, thank you so much for joining the IA podcast. It's been a fascinating discussion, both um, kind of in the, in the subject area specifics of wireless technology, but also just kind of the broader principles around uh, innovation and, and ensuring at the cutting edge of, of technology. Um, if you're enjoying the IA podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider or on YouTube you can, where you can watch the video. And if you're enjoying uh, the IA podcast, please do visit the IA website and where you can also sign up to become a Patreon if you'd like to support us. Well, if you enjoyed that conversation, why not watch one of these other videos? And while you're here, remember to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. That way you'll never miss out on a single IEA broadcast.